Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. For the past year, with the cruel collision of a staggering pandemic, a flailing economy, and a massive resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement against a backdrop of a politically inflammatory landscape, the disproportionate impact of these unprecedented events on communities of color became clear fairly immediately. The fault lines in our various and intersecting social ecosystems have been grotesquely exposed, and the proverbial Band-Aid has been ripped off of the long-simmering wound of the racial equity conversation once again. Members of these affected communities are represented in our workforce, clearly, and the impact on the organizations are being felt. And many of you may recall that many organizations' DNI efforts were dealt a major blow following the last economic meltdown of 2008 and 2009. So this time around, and in an effort to avoid some of the mistakes in DNI that many organizations made in this space, we are seeing that organizations are digging in and even increasing their spend. They have been doubling down on their commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion. They've been publishing robust new commitment statements, recrafting the E&I policies, and delivering powerful learning opportunities. They are expanding their DE&I programs and initiatives, and a number of organizations are going even further. They are appointing dedicated officers to lead their efforts in this space. And whether you label these leaders as chief diversity officer or chief equity officer or chief culture officer, these professionals are increasingly being recruited to take on responsibility for working to create truly equitable workplaces, spearheading training and education efforts, developing strategies to attract and retain diverse talent, and working with business units across the board in evaluating policies and practices, all in service to making sure organizations reach their DE&I goals and outcomes. The CDO position, which I will typically refer to it throughout this conversation as, in fact, was recognized by the Wall Street Journal a few months ago as being, and I quote here, one of the hottest jobs in America right now. So, yes, diversity, equity, and inclusion is the emerging chief attraction in the C-suite. And to explore the growing momentum for these interests in the C-suite, I have invited two very special guests. I have with me my esteemed colleague right here from our Littler Chicago office, Paul Bateman. 
who has traded in his litigation bag for a seat in the C-suite. And under our firm's new president and managing director, Aaron Weber, Paul has just been named as Littler's first ever chief diversity officer last month. I also have the pleasure of having Dana Peterson Moore with me. Dana, who until now has been the assistant city solicitor for the city of Baltimore, and she has also traded in her trial gear. Effective February 1st, 2021, Dana will be the city of Baltimore's new chief equity officer. Like Littler, this is a first-time position for the city as well. And in full transparency, Dana is not only a guest, but a dear and personal friend. Paul and Dana, congratulations to both of you on these promotions. And thank you so much for agreeing to join me for this dialogue today. Cindy Ann, uh, thank you so much for uh, having me on this podcast. I look forward to really exploring these issues with you. Uh, you've always been a, a great thought leader within our firm, and you can count that I'm going to be counting on you going forward in my new role. <laughs> you got it, Paul. Thank you so much for inviting me. It, it's an honor to be part of this podcast. Great. Thank you for being here. Dana, look, when you informed <laughs> your dear 88-year-old mother, Eleanor Ann Anderson from Topeka, Kansas, of your promotion to Chief Equity Officer, and with all due respect to Miss Ellie, she exclaimed, and I quote here, what the hell is that? <laughs> she did. Didn't she? <laughs> yes, she yes, yes, she did. Uh-huh. Yes, she did. Now listen, listen, Dana, there are a lot of listeners out there that share your mother's consternation. So dish, Dana, what will that mean? What will you be doing in this new role? Well, as I explained to my mother in the moment, and God bless her, my mother uh, (laughs) was determined that I go to law school, and she actually took me down to Washington and Lee University School of Law, sat me at my desk and said, this is where you're going to be for the next three years. And she knows law, and she knows me as as the family lawyer. So when mm-hmm. I told her I was making a shift, she was shocked and she had no idea mm-hmm. what it was I was about to do. <laughs> I reminded her she really didn't know what I was going to do as a lawyer uh, all those years mm-hmm. ago. So what what we've, you know, together, I have, you know, worked with my mother to bring her up to speed about what I'll be doing, but I'm also learning it myself. Mm-hmm. Baltimore has a new mayor, Brandon Scott, and he campaigned on a platform of equity across the city of Baltimore and all of its agencies, boards, and commissions. So his mission and his mandate to me is that I make real that promise of equity in uh, his administration, uh, you know, under his leadership. So Mm -hmm. uh, on a day-to-day basis, what that means is I will be working with each and every agency and every person that I can get my reach into to make sure that we are leading and, uh, you know, delivering services in a manner that is equitable, that is inclusive of all of Baltimore and all of our various and varied stakeholders, that we right some of the wrongs of the past, that we create opportunity, mm-hmm. real opportunity, economic and opportunity uh, to learn and grow, 
it's a massive undertaking. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, I can tell you that, that more than once since I accepted this position, I sat in my chair and asked myself, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) 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 And and how are you you keep channeling? You keep channeling your mother, Dana. (laughs) I I do. I do. She's never steered me wrong. And um, it's, it's exciting. It's a very exciting time. Well, good, good. And, and, you know, Dana, how influential a CDO or a CIO uh, again, you know, whatever um, the the initials are or the label is, how influential you are can be affected by who the officer reports to. So to whom will you be reporting? So um, my direct report will be the city's new city administrator. We've never had a, that position before either. His name is Christopher Shorter. He comes to Baltimore by way of Austin, Texas, and Washington, D.C. So he'll be my direct report. But I also will be working very closely with Mayor Scott. But the most Mm -hmm. important group that I'll be reporting to is the city of Baltimore, the people of the city of Baltimore. We uh, will be operating with great transparency, issuing reports. I have already asked people to tell me what is important to Baltimore. I've gotten some great ideas. I actually think that's my most important reporting mechanism is to the city of Baltimore. I agree. I agree. And and, and besides the fact that you are a woman and an attorney of color and likely have any number of personal experiences that have impacted your personal interest in this space along the way, talk a little bit about what you think has best prepared you for the road ahead, Dana? Great question. Great question. Um, It's all of those things plus. You know, I have worked for a number of years in the role of city solicitor and deputy city solicitor. I've had an opportunity to work with all of the, you know, the city's agencies, many of the boards and commissions. I've served on some of the boards and commissions. I know how this government functions. But I'm also a community person. I, you know, my first real interaction with Baltimore government was in the role of a member of my neighborhood association and then president. I feel like I have awareness of what Baltimore's residents and neighborhoods need and what people want to see and how they want change to happen. Um, mm-hmm. Before I joined the city of Baltimore, I had my own law practice. And I represent, I really focused on small minority and women-owned businesses and helping them access opportunity and helping them grow. So I think that whole, (laughs) right, right, right. That whole collection of experiences really has prepared me for this new role. it's, It's really just an awareness of what's actually happening, you know, in the city, in the agencies, in the neighborhoods, and in businesses. Right. And and you know what? So you clearly always had a personal and a professional interest in, in community, to be sure. But I have to believe that the multiple and tragic events of 2020 feed your desire, at least a little bit, to further your efforts in this space for your city. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how those events will potentially color your leadership style and or your deliverables? 
another good question. The, the, the <laughs> summer of 2020, I, you know, I hate to say that it was an awakening for Baltimore. We did experience even greater turmoil in uh, 2015 after the death of Freddie Gray. And of that course. was, right, I mean, that was very troubling. Uh, we, we saw our city burn. Mm-hmm. I was outside of City Hall at that time. I, I was not part of the government. Uh, one of the favorite teachers of, of myself is outside at a demonstration right outside City Hall in 2015, mm-hmm. not ever thinking that one day I would be sitting in the very office that I was protesting. Uh, fast mm-hmm. forward to 2020, and, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've been dealing with the pandemic. We've been working overtime, trying to make sure that people were getting the services Food, just food, shelter, um, access to medical care, simply so that they could live. And, and that was grueling. And layer on top of that, the loud voices, the many demonstrations, City Hall still is ringed with bicycle racks. We have mm-hmm. a, a, a very increased perimeter. And, you know, drop into that, my responsibilities as a chief legal officer for the city of Baltimore, you know, on the, you know I... You know, I tell people from time to time when they need to be reminded that I was a black woman long before I was a lawyer and certainly mm-hmm. long before I was the chief legal officer for the city of Baltimore. My father and mother are both from Topeka, Kansas, uh, pre-Brown, as they always would remind us. And there's um, awareness of the inequities in, in, in American society and the challenges. And so... Right. You know, on the one hand, I'm the chief legal officer for the city. I want to make sure that no harm comes to, to anybody. At the same time, I am equally pulled to be in the masses and demonstrating and raising my voice against inequity. So it's, right. a, you know, it's a real struggle. And how does that inform my job? I know why people are angry. I know why people are demonstrating. I know why people are speaking out in, in many ways. Uh, the, the crowds are expressing some of the frustrations that I have had in my own career, the unfairness and the inequity. So um, you know, to say that I have empathy is probably an understatement. To say that I have an awareness is, is more, more accurate. I get it. I get it. Yeah. And I feel duty-bound. Um, I, didn't, I didn't ask for this position. I wasn't seeking it. But it was, uh, I was asked to do a job for a reason, and I think it's because of my awareness and because of my empathy and because I have walked in the path of the, the forgotten, the disregarded, and the, the discarded. And I think I have a duty to address those problems because I know that they are real. Wow. That's powerful. And just for the benefit of our listeners who may not understand the pre-Brown reference that you just made, of course, Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, the landmark 1954 decision. Correct, correct. We uh, in in the family have uh, my father's yearbook from Topeka High School, and you hold it in your hands and you read it from from left to right, left to right, and it starts out with all the white white part of the high school, and then you flip it and reverse it. And then you read uh, about the black Topeka High School, and even the yearbook is separate. One binding, wow. one, one bind, but separate. <laughs> yes. 
Thank you. Dana. I know, I know. Listen, mm-hmm. in, in light of, of that, how does it feel to be assuming this position on such a brand new day and following the recent changing of the guard in a country that has been scarred by such truly perverse, frankly, racial strife fueled by the mm-hmm. past administration and its disgraced leader? Well, um, so everything happens for a reason, and we don't always know why. <laughs> uh, sometimes we just need to reflect on on the moments that we've been that we've been presented with. And for me, I can say, initially, I was just really daunted by being asked to take on this role. And now, um, after watching what happened in the last two weeks, the outrageousness of it the horror, the sheer terror of watching our Capitol uh, building, the District of Columbia, where I grew up, fall to such a hatred and evil, and and the reclaiming of democracy, and watching it in real time, I feel energized. I feel energized. I feel blessed to be part of the solution at this very time. I feel very energized by it. Um, yes. focused. I'm, I'm enthused. Um, we have a lot of partners. One of the things that's happened since this appointment was announced, the, oh, oh, God. So here's another speaker reference. It's like that scene in The Wizard of Oz uh, after <laughs> um, the witch has been eliminated and people start coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> and they're mm-hmm. like, you know, they're like, Dorothy, Dorothy. And they want to help and they're, they want to make sure she gets home. And, you know, they, they want to write all right. these wrongs. And since this announcement, the number of people that have come forward and said, hey, I want to help you. I want to be part of the solution. We, we, we have ideas. We have structure. Uh, we have funds. We, we have, you know, expertise that we can lend and give and be part of the, the team. I'm like, really? I'm like, oh, I, I had no idea that you did that. I had no idea. And uh, so it feels, it feels good. It feels right. That is wonderful, Dana. You know, the, the past year has seen a, a collision of sorts between two viruses. We are, of course, excited about the distribution of a vaccine that promises so much in the way of inoculating against uh, coronavirus. But how can we use the power of emerging positions like yours to essentially inoculate an institution from what I dubbed the other ugly virus of 2020 a few podcasts ago? Racism. Mm That's a powerful question. It has what what I think might be some assumptions, and 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 hear me on this. I I'm not sure we can inoculate completely against racism. Just as we're 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 not, there are going to be some who simply won't take the vaccine. Mm. They're willing to take the risk of mm, COVID. Mm. They're willing to take the risk of death, and there are some, and, and they were in Washington on full display two weeks ago. There are some that are happy and content in their racism. Um, They're okay with it. But you know what? Institutions are not. And institutions through these positions will have not just the, the power to make change, but a mandate to make change and tools to help ferret out 
those that refuse to be inoculated against hate. <laughs> I, I love you sticking with the analogy. Thank you, Dana. This is right. Now we're not going to be running around our offices with hypodermic needles, but our hypodermic uh-huh. will be. You know the questions that we ask on the coming in, uh-huh. the, the the policies and structures that we put in place to make sure that there's opportunity and access. And those that are not willing to follow those procedures and practices, they will show themselves that they will be invited to move on to their next assignment. Nicely put. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. race in this country is such an uncomfortable topic, always has been. But encompassed in your job, regardless of whether or not it's in any formal job description, is the task of having to consistently and candidly raise inherently uncomfortable issues. Is your agency ready? I have a very strong belief that you have to fund your priorities, and our mayor has made equity um, his top priority. Unsolicited, the first call that I got was from our budget director, the city's budget director, who said, I'd like to sit down with you and talk about how we're going to fund this mandate. I found that incredibly exciting, but also very powerful because it shows that this isn't just the mayor saying, I want this. This is his leadership saying, we're going to fund it. We're going to make sure it happens. We're going to talk about this in a very intentional, planned way to make sure that the chief equity officer has the tools that are needed to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, we have um, looked into the agencies to see what skill sets and talents are there now, what's needed, um, how do we make the changes that are, are, are critical to support the change that's coming. Um, a lot of the agencies have already started doing the work. So I, um, I feel that the city of Baltimore, the, as a corporate entity, mayor and city council, is ready. Yeah, yeah, we're ready. Good, great, great. So now you're in charge, Dana. You're the city of Baltimore's chief equity officer. Uh, but because uh, these uh, chief positions are often hired to solve an organization's isms issue, so in addition to racism, sexism, ageism, classism, ableism, whatever the ism may be, and in so many cases, the responsibility for transforming organizational culture is placed entirely on that officer's shoulders. The problem, of course, is that majority leadership members don't actually want to have to do what they consider to be your job. So I wonder if you can help our listeners extinguish this notion that the success of an organization's DE&I strategy somehow rests on the shoulders of he or she who lays claim to the title of chief. So I, I see the role as, okay, I, you know, forgive me this analogy, as the maestro holding the baton that makes sure <laughs> that every section of the orchestra is working together to make a beautiful oh. harmony. Yeah. It doesn't happen, you know, the symphonic sound, the lushness, of those notes, it doesn't happen simply because there's one person, you know, on a on a stool holding the baton. It's everybody who's worked together 
to do their part, to learn their part, to carry out their part, you know, working together to come to one, you know, melodic result. So in taking this position, you know, I had said, uh, I don't want there to be one person in every agency whose total responsibility it is to make sure that the equity function of, of that agency is carried out. It has to be infused throughout the agency. Otherwise, it's not successful. Yes, absolutely. I so appreciate your response here because there is a limit to how much one person can move the needle on his or her own, right? Absolutely. Oh, gosh, back when, you know, years ago when we were doing a lot of talking and conversation about what is leadership and what's a leader and, and how do you identify a leader? And a, a young person said, well, you're not a leader if no one's following. <laughs> I, was, I was a kid that said that. I was a high school student, and that has stuck in my head. And the same is with with this position. You know, I, I, I will carry the title Chief Equity Officer, but so what if no one else is engaged with it? It matters right. not. So I will right. be working very and hard. I, I, I know you will. So let me ask you this, and only because so often these C-suite positions dedicated to D, E, and I are often being filled by people of color. How do organizations ensure that they don't rely on people of color to navigate them through race-oriented crises, like the social justice movement that arose uh, in the wake of George Floyd's murder or uh, in 2015 after uh, Freddie Gray? Well, this is where I think that the, the chief diversity officer or the chief equity officer has to be pretty honest and, and be unafraid to say that it's time for white people to talk to white people about what white people do and think and how they relate to people of color. We need those voices. We need that knowledge. We need you know, that access. And when I say we, I mean people of color, chief diversity, chief equity officers. Uh, we need everyone to be part of the solution. It's not a black thing. It's not, mm -hmm. a, a, it's not an able or disabled person's thing. It's not the goal of the LGBTQ population. It's not the job of the homeless to, to make these changes. It's for all of us. And I say all of those because it's not just equity, you know, racial equity that I'm going to be working with. It's it's all of those who have, you know, felt left out. And it's for all of us to work together to make these changes happen. And um, the failure to be part of the solution, you know, I think, again, is um, an indication that maybe this is not the place for those that don't want to be part of the solution. Understood. So at this point, I, I want to bring in my colleague, Paul. Paul, in your new capacity as Chief Diversity Officer of Littler, we are generally aware that the position will demand an ability to develop and promote the firm's diversity goals and strategies. But can you outline a few of your key responsibilities. 
Certainly, Cindy Ann, it would be a pleasure to do so. And let me just kind of go through what I would identify as really four big bucket areas. The first one is our Breaking Through Initiative. And what Breaking Through Initiative is designed to do is to double the number of female and attorneys of color, uh, shareholders, in the top 25% of our shareholder compensation group. So Breaking Through Initiative is number one. The second one is our Career Advocacy Program. This is a program where we pair shareholders with associates and basically provide a system to ensure the advancement of the careers of our diverse and female attorneys. Mm -hmm. The third one is our affinity groups. We have a number of affinity groups within Littler, including, for example, BOLO, which is for African-American attorneys such as myself. We're going to continue to work with the affinity groups, particularly with regard to recruiting diverse lawyers. And finally, Cindy Ann, a topic that you know quite well, because you've been involved with this in our firm, and that's our implicit bias training that we started. Uh, I think we're at the point now where we're ready to complete that implicit bias training, but we need to be able to pivot to providing tools for our attorneys and staff so that not only do they know what implicit bias is, but they have resources in which to interrupt implicit bias. Yes, yes. So, Paul, you you named one affinity group. Are there others? If so, uh, if you can identify those, that would be great. Oh, absolutely. So uh, another affinity group is what is known as PRIDE, which is our LGBTQ community. We have Reunion, which is our Latinx community. And then we have Ohana, which is our Asian South Pacific attorneys as well. So those are our four main affinity groups. We also have something that's known as our Women's Leadership Initiative, uh, and we are looking at some other affinity groups to perhaps kick off during the next year or so. Great. Now, Paul, Dana talked a little bit about why this and why now for her. What has prepared you for the road ahead? So what has prepared me for the road ahead is the following. First is my knowledge of the firm. I think in order to effectively do this job, uh, it helps to know the people. Uh, it helps to know the, the past and the issues that have been confronted in the past. Second uh, has been my work on the Diversity and Inclusion Council. I, I uh, was one of the uh, charter members, if you will, and have been uh, a participant on the council for a number of years and with a number of the, the projects. And then I think third for me is a skill I have that I would just call plain old-fashioned listening. Mm -hmm. I think that in this space, you have to be able and willing to listen to people and to understand uh, not only their issues, but their concerns. Uh, so I think when I Agreed. put those three together, it works. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to whom will you be reporting, Paul? I will be reporting directly to our managing director, President Aaron Weber. That was very important to her in terms of this position, that it would be mm -hmm. a direct report uh, that I would participate in management 
committee uh, meetings and that I would have a seat at the table where, you know, my perspective could be shared. And, and I think that is great that it's a direct report because, Cindy, you know, I like to come up with uh, song titles and, yeah. and lyrics, but on this one, I will just simply go to a movie, and I've, and I've used this quote before, and that is, and it comes from Remember the Titans, uh-huh. is attitude reflects leadership. Yeah. So yeah. if the leader's involved, the attitude can be there. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I will say this, reporting to the individuals, that you both have named brings the broadest influence. So that goes well for each of you and for your organization. So that's great. Now, what, what can firms like ours do and what strategies can we consider to making the legal profession more equitable, not only for women and people of color, but for many other traditionally marginalized groups, Paul, in, in the long term? So the the way I've always looked at this has been from the perspective of what I call the three R's, Cindy Ann. And for me, the three R's are the following. Recruit, reward, then you retain. And so I think that we have to have strategies where we effectively recruit, and in that recruitment that we are open to recruiting people who don't necessarily look like the recruiters. So that's one. Uh, I think we have to reward people to give them a sense of belonging, uh, a sense that they're part of the organization. And if we do that, I think then you can retain people. For sure. Excellent. Uh, The CBO position for large law firms is still a relatively new but increasingly popular concept. But its novelty in our industry is truly an opportunity for you, Paul. So what would you like to see for the position, and how would you like to go about shaping it? So from my perspective, it it is a relatively new position, and it is one that if you come into it with preconceived notions of you're going to do X, Y, and Z, I think you're setting yourself up for disappointment. So what I want to do here is I want to make sure that I am collaborating with our stakeholders, uh, whether it's our diversity council, it's our affinity group, whether it's practice group leaders such as yourself, Cindy Ann, so that I have the best information possible to make and recommend strategic decisions, but I think these are decisions and these are actions that if they're not embraced by at least a majority of the people within the firm, if they're not understood by a majority of the people within the firm, the ability to execute them just becomes more difficult. Yes. Yes. Agreed. So it's a a very integrated role. Without question. This is not, I tell you what to do. Can't be. So, you know, we're, we're really kind of veering down an accountability road here with, with that answer, Paul. And I want to talk a little bit more about accountability, particularly as it relates to people with whom we do business uh, as well. We often hear a lot about the issue of accountability and making sure that DE&I 
is truly sustainable. Uh, and in the wake of the recent events that have rocked this country in the past year, do you think more corporate legal departments will insist on diversity, equity, and inclusion report cards from their outside counsel? I mean, do you, you think we'll see a bit of a surge so as to hold us accountable? I think the answer to that question, Cindy Ann, is absolutely yes. I think there is to use a concept that Derek Bell came up with back in the 80s of, of a convergence between diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, and corporate interests. I, I think we're seeing that even more today in, in the wake of the events of, of last uh, spring. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I'm sitting here right now with an outside counsel evaluation form from one of my clients. And... 15% of the scorecard is on diversity, and it's not lip service. Uh-huh. So it's real, yeah. and I, I think that the more uh, law firms get uh, real about this, uh, the better for the profession as a whole. I, I agree. I completely agree. Uh, I want to switch gears here a little bit. The Pandemic has undoubtedly been a dark and massive cloud in almost every way imaginable. But if we are to stick with the analogy uh, of clouds, I want to talk about silver linings. Uh, And as Chief Diversity Officer, how do you envision that our particular profession's new norm, being working remotely, for instance, may open up may open up opportunities for more inclusion in the profession, especially with respect to traditionally underrepresented groups? Well, clearly the pandemic uh, has turned things upside down, whereas it used to be that law firms were doing what I would call bed checks on their attorneys as to whether or not they were in and how long they were staying there. That has gone out the window. So this has really given an opportunity for us to kind of redefine how we do work, where we do work. And I think that on the one hand, it can certainly be a benefit to individuals who have uh, responsibilities at home that they could not otherwise take care of if they were uh, confined to being in the office from nine to five. So I, I think that that uh, in and of itself is is going to really uh, provide some further opportunities to diversify our profession, diversify our law firms, diversify uh, the manner in which uh, assignments are, are given out. Uh, because it won't be just you knock on the, the person who's next door to you who you've just always become very comfortable with. At the same time, though, One of the challenges of the pandemic and working remotely is is that you sometimes you can't get that stickiness, if you will, in terms of relationships. So we we need to be very careful about that as well. I chuckle when you said bed checks, Paul, because I recall my days as an early associate a couple of decades ago, and I recall, you know, late in the evening 
when sweaters or coats would be cradling empty chairs and empty cups of, of coffee would be strategically placed on the desk. So, so that would allow senior partners to conduct these bed checks, whether or not these people had just put the props on their desks. It certainly allowed for the illusion that, okay, good, these attorneys are here. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. And, and your laughter tells me that you recall some of those scenes as well in your early days as an attorney in the profession. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, don't turn off the light switch, just leave it on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, thanks for sharing that memory lane uh, walk with me, Paul. <laughs> Listen, employee resource groups and affinity groups, uh, they're a great starting point to allow certain groups safe spaces to communicate about matters that affect them. But how, especially in your new role, how would you encourage members of any organization, and not just those who are members uh, of a structured ERG or an affinity group, to have the courage to speak out against any isms? I think that in this area, people have to be willing to say what is on his or her mind, but they have to do it in such a way that if it is not well-received, that they don't use pushback as a reason not to continue speaking out. Uh, you know, I, I, I know I've seen some situations where someone says something and they could have said it better. They could have said it in a more appropriate way. But once there's pushback against that, then they say, well, I'm not going to say anything in the future. No, that, that's, not, that's not how this works. You, you have to be willing to have uncomfortable conversations. You have to be willing to accept criticism when you speak out. You have to be willing to be a little bit uncomfortable in this area. Mm -hmm. And I finally mm -hmm. will say this much. If you don't have anything to say, don't say something just to say it. <laughs> I, I do agree with you on that. <laughs> Definitely. But we also have to create the environment that allows for that kind of courage. Absolutely. So people have to... They have to be embraced. People have to create environments where differences are not only tolerated but encouraged because mm -hmm. if you can't talk frankly about your differences, then you're not really going to learn and you're really not going to be able to, if behavior needs to be changed, to change it. Right, right. Thank you for that, Paul. I definitely appreciate that. I want to discuss wellness for a moment. The past year's circumstances have proven to be very difficult for various groups, giving rise to the concerns around the issue of mental health. And, and just to add some context to this question that I'm about to pose to you, Paul, for instance, Asian Americans are said to be one racial group 
that is the least likely to reach out for help, in large part due to the model minority mix that continue to persist. And even as hate crimes against them continue to swell due to the xenophobic associations with COVID-19. There is a common cultural notion, for instance, that seeking help in Asian culture is akin to failure and a negative reflection on the family. They are not the only group, but I bring them up specifically since there is a particularly unkind invisibility that marks their struggles in this space. Can you share your thoughts about how a CDO can use his or her role to address a cultural competence component of mental health and overall wellness for an organization's ethnically diverse members and in an effort to retain those members and safeguard their work experiences. So, Cindy Ann, uh, we know that mental health issues are very prevalent in the legal community in general, uh, and you're absolutely correct uh, with regard to certain groups within our legal community, they are more pronounced. One of the things that is really uh, sad to me about the issue of mental challenges is, is that the stigma that is often associated with mental challenges whether it be depression or anxiety. So I think that what we have to do in this area and what I'm really uh, looking to do uh, just in terms of an employee resource group is we need to make sure that, number one, we have resources available to individuals uh, within our law firms. Number two, we need to raise the consciousness of lawyers within the law firms that these issues are real uh, and that uh, there shouldn't be any stigma attached to that. Mm -hmm. And then not only do we have to have the resources just available, because it's not just enough to just put it on the website or or have it as part of some wellness program. Uh, We need to actively advise individuals of the availability of these resources and encourage people not only to use them, but when they see someone who can use that kind of assistance, be a friend. Be a friend and help them out. Thank you so much for that, because particularly in the industry, there is such a stigma, and we have to work at at destigmatizing it. So thank you for that. So a few questions for both of you at this point. Equity is not a new issue. In some form or another, it has been around for companies, if even in the background, for quite a while. But 2020 really placed a magnifying glass on the disparities that are occurring in marginalized groups. How will these emerging realities of our current environment impact your respective leadership lenses and in your new roles? Paul? Well, Cindy Ann, you really raise a very poignant point. 
at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I would look at the news and I would see the disparity in the deaths of individuals from the coronavirus in Chicago. Uh, it was staggering. You would look at the availability of health care within the communities, which he knew existed, but it was just exemplified. So the, the pandemic has definitely weighed heavily on me just in terms of thinking about equity uh, within our community in large and, and elsewhere. I, I think the one thing that we have to keep in mind, though, just in terms of equity is it really means treating people not necessarily the same, but differently based off of their needs. So, I mean, the pandemic has really shown that just in terms of health care requirements and health care being availability. So as we look at this uh, in terms of any issue, uh, we definitely have to recognize that there is a need to do different things for different people, mm-hmm. celebrate our differences, and address our differences in the most appropriate and effective manner. And and when you when you talk about that, Paul, I I clearly understand what you were also saying that. Equality, a very, very different uh, term, uh, is not inextricably linked to the concept of equity. They could not be any different in certain situations. I mean, we, we think about equality, and, and it's a quick uh, uh, and easy say to, well, we're going to treat everyone the same. But there are instances where it's not appropriate to treat everyone the same, there's instances where it's not even efficient to treat everyone the same. So that's where equity comes into play, treating people based off of their needs, not treating everybody necessarily the same. would like to get to that point where we could treat everybody the same, but... Mm-hmm. That is such an important distinction that you make, Paul, and I'm really glad that you made it uh, for all of our listeners. So thank you. So one of the things that COVID has brought us is this great awareness that we are all one crisis away from being that thing, that other, that we have found to be, you know, so foreign, so different, you know, maybe even frightening. You know, I I started <laughs> writing a, uh, something that starts out, darn you, 2020. You crept into places vast and shallow and deep and narrow and showed us that loss and sorrow and grief and fear can find us no matter our privileged or vaunted status. You found Mm. our places of comfort and protection and let us know that in no time at all, we can all be made the other that we disdain, the other that we have constructed our lives to not see. 2020 um, has shown us that those with plenty um, can be made to be those with none. And I think that reality, I, it's scary. It was frightening to see um, so many uh, fearful of losing their homes, not being able to feed themselves, not be able to pay their rent, 
those with mortgages perhaps did a little bit better because they had a corporation behind that mortgage that knew that they needed to work to someday get their money. But then there's people who couldn't send their kids to school, kids who dropped out of you know elementary, middle school, high school. 2020 has shown us that we can very quickly become the have-nots. And I believe that this experience has really infused an awareness and empathy that we, we so need <laughs> and that, that will help us as we move forward in trying to right so many wrongs. I hope people will realize that we're not talking about other people. We're talking about them, and they've been there, and they know. That's my hope. That's my hope. Dana, you have been my friend for more than 20 years, and I never knew that you had such power of the pen. So thank you for sharing that, and I look forward to getting that essay. I will share it. I will share it. Uh, Thank you. Listen, I definitely appreciate that not all organizations can dedicate a C-suite position for DE&I. And for members of such organizations who may be listening, how do organizations like the ones that each one of you represent meaningfully go about avoiding the treatment of DE&I as some kind of philanthropic endeavor? So even if a designated CDO position just isn't feasible. Cindy Ann, there are a lot of organizations that do not have CDOs. We did not have one until just this year, right? but you can, st- you can still effectively push DE&I initiatives, whether it be through a group of individuals, uh, whether it be through a formal or an informal structure. To me, the most important thing is, is that you give individuals the tools and the resources to recognize what is necessary to create an inclusive environment because the bottom line is this. In order to create an inclusive environment on a day-to-day basis, it can't simply be the responsibility of one individual or a small group of individuals. It has to be the responsibility of everyone within the organization. It does. So, you know, my thought is um, even for small companies, uh, nonprofits, you know, those that can't dedicate to this, get out of your office or get out of your home and off the Zoom and, and try to meet someone for coffee that you're not comfortable with because they're different from you. Have a cup of coffee with them. Ask them. Hey, what, what what's your experience been in this organization? And then really listen to the answers. Really listen to the answers. And I especially encourage this for organizations that are, um, you know, led by those that have been in a position for a very very long time and have always done things this way. And so we're always going to do things this way. Be open to change. Uh, be open to the conversation. Uh, don't don't assume that because someone has been coming to work and doing a good job that they're that they're okay and that they're happy with how they're treated. 
exactly. you know, I, I, I don't want to share anyone's story, but a, a dear friend who's just, just a brilliant, brilliant person has spent much time with me on the phone talking about their very small nonprofit agency that is led by very well-intended people, but who just don't see my friend as my friend is and completely discounts my friend's color, ethnicity, mm-hmm. religiosity that is different from theirs and uh, refuses to hear my friend's cries for help. That's not good. That can change without spending one penny. That can change with an opening of the heart, with an opening of the mind. And if you don't want to open your heart and you don't want to open your mind, open your ears, open your mouth, listen, have a conversation. Walk a mile in that person's shoes. You'll be forever changed. Again, to both of you, we've been wringing our hands about diversity and inclusion in earnest for more than a quarter century now, at least. And we have admittedly been absorbing and are possibly invigorated very differently this time around by a host of unprecedented and overlapping events in the past few years. Me Too, Black Lives Matter, COVID-19, a polarizing political climate that was low-lighted by an attempted heist of our democratic processes at the U.S. Capitol building uh, to which you just referred. Uh, Dana, at the beginning of the year, but hardcore diversity-fatigued cynics who say this is just another peak in the cyclical conversations that we've been having for decades in this space and that it's merely trending, you say what to that charge? I mean, what if anything is different this time around? How, How will each of you go about ensuring that the current support for equity outlives the outrage. They say that, and I'm, and I'm not going to say this exactly right, but, you know, the demonstrations are in, in the street are the actions or the voices of the unheard. And I, I, sh- I should find exactly what that's saying, how it's, how it's said. But I think that we hear everyone. We, we feel the rage ourselves. We, we hear the the, the words we we understand why people are in the streets we we don't disagree the murder of George Floyd in real time as we watched all those minutes makes it impossible to deny that this racial hatred exists we are at a time where uh, we are the children we are the children of the civil rights movement we were raised with it. It is in our blood. It is in our DNA. We are aware. And now we are in positions to actually be able to do something about it. And those that uh, understand that and take that mandate seriously are in the positions to be able to actually act. I don't think this is going to be business as usual because business can't exist with these levels of uh, hatred and, and disappointment and exclusion. Uh, you know, change happens for a lot of reasons. Fear, em- embracing economic motivators. I think they're great economic motivators. For whatever reason that change comes, I'm, I'm all in for that. And it seems to me that a lot of these uh, motivations for change 
are combining to make this real and make this lasting. There are laws in place that assure it. Think about it. When we were coming up, we as black women had to wear our hair a certain way. Well, now there's the Crown mm-hmm. Act that mm-hmm. says, oh, no, you know, we're, we're not, that, that's not the case. Laws mm-hmm. are in place. And um, I think it, it's, um, it's a combination of uh, you know, factors that are combining to make this uh, feel uh, like much more lasting change. Yeah. Paul? I can tell you that from what I witnessed last year, the major difference from this time around than from what I've seen in the past, and you're right, Cindy Ann, this is, we've been at this for a while, but, but I really just see a different attitude, particularly among our newer attorneys, they seem to really have been impacted. They seem to really have understood. They seem really to want to engage in this area and to make things better. So it might be that it is just a matter of a generational change that has really advanced this. And the other thing that I think that has that has happened, because we kind of see this going on from time to time when we look in the news over the last uh, couple of weeks, you know, businesses have a really diverse customer base, and businesses have really kind of stepped up here in in more meaningful ways, I think, than what I saw, and I'm dating myself, uh, from the, uh, the the late 60s, early 70s. So I think those two things, uh, that's what makes me think this time it's different. How much different remains to be seen. But I do think it's different this time. There does seem to be a different energy, and it is nice to to see how much it transcends uh, color and class uh, and race and, and generation. So I am, I am hopeful uh, with you, Paul. Knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm knocking with you. Dana and Paul, my two wonderful guests, any final thoughts that you would each like to share before we bring this to a close? Paul? I would simply share, be bold, be innovative, and be courageous in this area. What do we have to lose? My, my final thought is for Baltimore, for, you know, for all your listeners, don't be afraid of change. Don't be afraid to be part of the solution. Be open to the amazing things that can happen when we all realize that by opening opportunity for others, by sharing our our gifts, we lose nothing. We have it all to gain. I want to thank you, Cindy Ann Thomas, the most amazing lawyer that I know, (laughs) for having this conversation, for leading us in this conversation. 
and, and thank you for uh, inviting me to be part of this. Thank you. Dana, Dana P. Moore and Paul E. Bateman, I really value both of you taking the time to share your thoughts about the emerging chief attraction in the C-suite and from where you both now lead. Thank you so much for joining me for this discussion. I am wishing you both so much luck and you both have all of my support as colleagues and as friends. I do hope you all have appreciated this podcast as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcasts at littler.com if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thank you for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.